The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory, Glory to, to you, you, Lord Christ. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning again, everyone. It's a delight to have you here this morning. It's been a wonderful morning thus far. This is our fourth service. I told the pastors that I wanted to walk in, processing in with our hands up like this, like it was the fourth quarter, like a football team signifying our time has come to an end, but we have so much more yet to go. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation, the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing, acceptable to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Irish film, The Banshees of Sheeran, has received a lot of critical acclaim. Maybe you've seen this film. It was up for nine Academy Awards, and it won three Golden Globe Awards, including Best Film in a Musical or Comedy, which is odd because it's not funny. It's actually quite sad. There's some dark humor, but it deals with sexual abuse and with loneliness and with the loss of a friendship that can't be restored. And one quote that echoes even after the film is finished is this. Some things there's no moving on from, and I think that's a good thing. A character named Patrick says this. He's played by Colin Farrell, and he says this to Colm, who's played by Brendan Gleeson, and he does this after Colm has done the unthinkable. He's come to who he thought was his best friend and said, I no longer want to be friends with you. We're no longer friends. Stop talking to me. And Patrick is dumbfounded as to why, and so he continues to ask why and why and why. And finally, Colm says, if you don't leave me alone and stop asking me questions, I'm going to begin cutting off my own fingers, which he does. And then he throws them at Patrick's door. And then Patrick's beloved donkey, Jenny, comes by, finds them, eats them, chokes on them, and dies. And this is the film that won best comedy. And it's not, it's not funny. It's tragic in so many ways. And Patrick's 
everything that he does to try and restore the relationship only results in greater loss and greater damage. And many of us know what this is like. Some of us have relationships like this, marriages like this, friendships like this, family relationships like this. When Patrick says some things there's no moving on from, and I think that's a good thing, you're not sure if he's saying it in a sinister way out of vengeance towards Colm for what he's done, or if he's saying it in a redemptive way because he's so utterly committed to the relationship. Some things there's no moving on from. And we see that this morning with these two women in Matthew's account of the resurrection. They don't move on from Thursday night and Jesus' arrest and betrayal. They don't move on from Friday night and his crucifixion and his death. Apparently, they can't do so. And so Matthew writes in verse 1 that they come to see the tomb. But in seeing the tomb, they see so much more. And something happens to them, and they're changed. Raising the question for us of whether or not we can see something this morning and be changed as well. Maybe we can begin to see our lives differently and our failures and our losses and even our future differently because Jesus has been raised today. So what does Jesus's resurrection tell us about our greatest losses, but also about God's apparent failures? So two points this morning, words of shock and words of sight. First of all, words of shock. I do think that these women and others would have seen Jesus's death as a failure of God, a failure to answer their prayers and a failure to meet their expectations and fulfill their desires, or more simply as a failure to just show up and do what they wanted him to do because God didn't save Jesus from death. God didn't make him the earthly king of Israel that everyone expected. Jesus didn't charge into Jerusalem like a a conquering general and set up shop. And when he didn't do that, all of the crowds turned on him. The very same crowds that we spoke about last week, those that were cheering him, celebrating him, they turn on him. Just a few days later, they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Words which we took on our own lips on Friday night because Jesus had failed them, they thought, and God also. And some got angry, others grieved, but everyone would have been in shock to see Jesus hanging on a cross. Words of shock fill our gospel reading. Each gospel writer you may know has a different emphasis emphasis about the resurrection. Mark's main emphasis is fear. Luke's is confusion. John emphasizes grief, but Matthew seems to combine all of these emotions and emphasize shock because everything shakes in our passage. There's an earthquake in verse two. It happens when this angel descends to roll away the stone that's there before the tomb and the angel's appearance, Matthew says, is like lightning. It's indescribable, but shocking and so overwhelming, so traumatic that it's not just the earth that shakes, but also the guards. Verse four says they trembled which is not a very good translation, I don't think. It'd be better to say that they quaked because the same Greek word that's used to describe the earthquake in verse two. Verse two says there's a mega earthquake, a great earthquake. Mega is the the Greek word mega, which is a word that Matthew loves. There's a mega earthquake in verse two, and then men begin to quake in verse four, enough that they're like dead men, Matthew says, whatever that means, knocked unconscious potentially. And this is a little bit of irony, I think, because The living men outside the tomb look dead while the formerly dead man who was in the tomb is now alive. And so the living die and the the dead live. And it's meant to be shocking, words of shock. These women came in grief and then they become confused, more confused than they were before that. And they have to be told repeatedly, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And maybe that's some of you this morning. Even on Easter morning, maybe you come in here grieving 
over a death, a recent diagnosis, a, a recent tragedy, a divorce or a breakup. Maybe this is your first Easter alone. Or maybe you come in here confused about your life, about relationships, about God, about why God allowed or could allow whatever it is that's happening to you. Or maybe you simply need to hear Jesus say, do not be afraid because you are afraid of something. I'm sure that's true of many of our friends at Covenant Prez in Nashville this morning as they gather together for worship. It's probably also true for many at Park City's Presbyterian in Dallas, especially after what happened last Sunday. As most of you know by now, Chad Scruggs is a senior pastor at Covenant Prez, and his daughter was one of the victims who lost her life. But before he went to Covenant Prez in Nashville, he was at Park City's Prez in Dallas. And Covenant Prez didn't, they didn't provide a live stream for Hallie, his daughter's funeral, but they did provide an encrypted feed directly to PCPC so that that church, which, which knows Hallie and loves the Scruggs so much, could be a part. And so they were able to watch that funeral on Saturday. And then on Sunday at the 11 o'clock service, all of a sudden the church alarm begins to go off. And there's flashing lights and blaring sounds and an automated voice telling everyone to exit immediately. Can you imagine for that church? And all that had happened was the sprinkler broke and began to set off the alarm. But imagine what they thought. They frantically exited trying to find their children causing so much additional shock to an already beleaguered church. And why? Why that church on that Sunday of all Sundays? Why in that moment with thousands of people there? We don't know answers to questions like that, but I do know that the scriptures never shy away from questions like that. They never shy away or downplay the darkness of this world, even on Easter. Matthew squarely with this passage faces the darkness of the world and all the results of it, of evil and death and sin, because the earth quakes now, not only on this day, but also in our day. Just like Matthew says, it quaked when Jesus died and he shouted out with a mega voice, with a great voice and rock split. And the temple curtain was torn in two, tearing, shaking, grief, confusion, fear. This happens here because this happens now. This is our world. We know this. Our world's not right. It's clear and obvious to us all. Just consider the headlines this week. For the first time, a foreign president's been arrested and charged with crimes. Finland joins NATO out of fear over Russia potentially doing to them what they did to the Ukraine. And then almost 40 people are dead from tornadoes ripping across the South and the Midwest. So much brokenness, so much strife and division and violence and death because our world always quakes and always trembles. And so people always have to do what these women do, which is to visit graves that are only simply marked by that which signifies where their loved ones used to live, but now lay there. Grief and confusion and fear always overshadows our life to some point. And the Bible never downplays that or denies that. The question is, do you and your ease and your comfort and your boredom in your monotony, do you downplay that? In fact, the Bible begs another question of us this morning, and that is, what is your answer to the darkness and the death of this world, the very darkness and death that you face, that we all face? What is your answer? Do you have one? Because you can. You can have one. Matthew tells us so. So point two, words of sight. Who do you think of when I say the words, I'll be back? You should think of Jesus. <laughs> he told everyone he was going to rise from the dead, but you didn't. It's fine. 
He thought of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and that's fair because he's made it his signature phrase. There was a fascinating article in The Atlantic last month about Arnold Schwarzenegger. And after reading it, I don't think that Arnold Schwarzenegger has an answer to the darkness around him, to the death that he faces. But it seems like he truly longs for one. He longs for immortality. When he recently spoke at Jamie Lee Curtis's Hollywood star ceremony, he emphasized one German word, verwicht, which means immortalized. He said, this is what's happening to you in this ceremony. And then also there's the 1977 documentary about weightlifting and bodybuilding that Arnold Schwarzenegger starred in. In the movie, the film opens with this song and the opening refrain of that song is everybody wants to live forever. And the author speculates that that's why Schwarzenegger, as he said, is such a sucker for prizes and awards. He, he compiles them and puts them all at the very front of his house, along with all his bodybuilding trophies and all these sculptures of himself. So that's the first thing that you see when you walk into his house. The author points out that even his catchphrase, I'll be back, he says, carries the intimation of some sort of eternal return, but it lands a little differently now that the aging gargantuan is inching closer and closer to the point of no return. In fact, Howard Stern asked Arnold Schwarzenegger about this, about his celebrated body declining and his inevitable death. And Schwarzenegger said, the truth is we're all six feet under and we're all going to rot. I'm not afraid of death, but I'm mad about it. And if that is so, if that's all that there is, if we're just gonna die and rot, then why does he speak out so vehemently against white supremacy and against far-right nationalism as ardently as he does. You may know that after Charlottesville in 2017, he made a video speaking to those who had marched. He said, your heroes are losers. You're supporting a lost cause. And believe me, I know because I knew the original Nazis because his father was a Nazi and fought for them in World War II. But if we're simply going to rot and be six feet under after we die and that's it, who cares? Why does he care? Why does it matter? Why did he visit Auschwitz? Why did he call Vladimir Putin once the war started asking him to end this campaign in Ukraine? If we're just a combination of biology and sociology living for 70 or 80 years and then that's it and there's no true vervic, there's no true immortality, if death is it, then why does it matter? He has no reason, no foundation for his ethics, for his activism, nothing. He has no answer for the darkness and death that he faces. But the question again is, do you, do you have an answer? Do you have a foundation upon which you live your life? Because Matthew offers us one here in his gospel passage. And he does so through these words of sight that he piles up. Six different times we find the word see in our passage. Three different times, Matthew uses the word behold because he wants us to behold something. The very least, he wants us to behold two things. One, he wants us to see Jesus as God. Both the women and the disciples, after they see Jesus, what does Matthew say that they do? It says that their seeing of him, the result is worship. And after 2,000 years of Christianity, we're a little bit inoculated to this statement. We expect it somewhat, but we have to remember Matthew himself is an ancient Jew, an ancient Orthodox Palestinian Jew. And everyone that he writes of in this passage are also Jewish. And there's nothing that the Jews reacted to, rejected, and revolted against more than the idea that a human being could be divine, particularly their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses and the prophets. The idea of him taking on flesh and having feet to take hold of was preposterous. Beyond preposterous, it was blasphemous. They stoned people for less. They killed Jesus for making this claim. 
But unapologetically and emphatically, Matthew ends his gospel saying everyone, every single person who sees Jesus after the resurrection, they don't just follow him. They bow down, grab a hold of his feet and worship him. So he wants us to see that. But he also wants us to see Jesus as God redeeming and renewing everything, everything. Notice the difference between the angel's direction to the women in verse seven and what Jesus directs them to in verse 10. There's just one slight difference. Did you notice it? It's not what they each tell him to do. They both say, go and tell others that they will see Jesus in Galilee. The difference is what they call those the women are to go to. The angel calls them his disciples. But what does Jesus call them? My brothers, my brothers, his brothers. What about his betrayers? What about those cowards? What about all those guys that left me? What about those disloyal, unbelieving, disobedient failures? Tell them I'm going to see him in Galilee. Has a little bit of a ring to it, doesn't it? Because that's what they were, his betrayers. But friends, the point is, that's what we all are towards God. But what we celebrate this morning is that Jesus' death and resurrection changed all of that. Paid for it paid for their failures, our failures, our sins, our betrayers of God and everyone else. To redeem means to buy back. Do you know that? How many of y'all been to a pawn shop? Actually, don't raise your hand. It's Easter. We cleaned up a little bit here this morning. But you go into a pawn shop, you take something of value, you give it to them, they give you money and a a redemption ticket. And then after a while, they give you a little bit of time and you bring it back in with a little bit more money and you buy it back. You buy back what you used to own, but now you own it again. And God has bought you back from sin and evil and death. Through the cross, he has bought you back and made you his children. Beloved, accepted, and delighted in just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. Everyone who believes in Jesus and is baptized into his name shares in his sonship to God. That's why he calls you brothers or sisters. It's why the Apostle Paul says what he does in our New Testament reading from Colossians 3. You have died. He writes it to people who are alive, but he's speaking about a spiritual death, that in Jesus' death, their spiritual death was absorbed. And then he says, you have new life. It's hidden, unassailable, protected in Jesus. It's unending. It's his resurrected life, family life, sibling life, partaking of divine life. Jesus' humanity began to share in divinity at the moment of his birth, at his very conception. But in his death and resurrection, our humanity began to share in God's very life and love. Tell my brothers they're redeemed. And also, last point, tell them they'll be renewed. And we see that in one word in verse 9, Jesus' greeting. He just simply says greetings as it's translated here. We could easily skip past that, but we shouldn't because We see so much in it because this word is used just three times in the entire gospel. Matthew uses it in chapter 26, 27, and here in 28. In chapter 26, guess whose lips this word comes on? Judas's. When he betrays Jesus, he says, greetings, master, greetings, rabbi, and betrays him. And then in chapter 27, the soldiers use it. When they're beating Jesus, they strip him naked, they beat him, and they say, hail, same word, hail, king of the Jews, mocking him. But here Jesus uses the same word, same exact word, but he uses it differently and he changes it. It's not a false greeting. It's not a feigned mocking hail. It's a sincere, personal, intimate word, a word for a good friend, a close friend, someone who's beloved. 
It's often used to translate the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. Literally, it means rejoice. Most of the time this word is used, it means rejoice because it's a word of joy. We can translate it, oh joy. Jesus sees them. He says, oh joy, it's you. It's you. It's the one that I've been wanting to see. And friends, that's how he responds when he sees you, even now. Everything that drips of betrayal in your life and meanness and mockery, every part of you, he's changed it. He's seeking to renew it, not just the words used, but every aspect of your life, changing it and renewing it, making what was awful into what is now beautiful and can be rejoiced in. And so can you see that this morning? Can you see all that he has and all that he continues to do to change every aspect of your life? Because some things can't be moved on from, and that's a good thing. And that something for God is you. Can you see that God has not moved on from you, whomever you are, whatever has happened, and that he's renewing every aspect of your life? One of my favorite lines from all of literature is in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Return of the King comes right after Gandalf has defeated the, the Balrog, which is this ancient creature of immense evil. And Sam, the hobbit, sees Gandalf and he exclaims, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And then he asks, what happened to the world? Gandalf assures him that something truly world-altering has happened, and he says a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. Friends, today is the day that laughter begins again. Today is the day that life begins again because the shadow of sin and death and evil has departed. It's been defeated in the death and resurrection of Christ, and he's been raised to redeem and renew all things, even you, even your life, every aspect of your life. So seize him. Even as these women take hold of his feet, the word's not strong enough. Seize him. Lay hold of him. See him this morning for you and with you that you might begin to worship him, that you might begin to laugh again today and every day hereafter. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would enable us to see Jesus as he is revealed here in this passage. You would give us the hope of seeing him ourselves as a friend and not a stranger, seeing him just like they saw him someday ourselves. Father, until then, assure us that even as Jesus said that day, he says today that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.